following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Good morning, Grace Church. So please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Privileged to open up the inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God with you. And before I read the scriptures, let me just say, Romans 9 feels like standing in the middle of these mighty sequoias, and you're just awestruck by the grandeur, and, and you're looking up at the majestic heights. But we're not just looking at the majestic heights, we are actually digging around the roots as well. And we are seeing things, and they are awe-inspiring truths, they are mysterious, and they are beyond our ability to comprehend. God gives us illumination, God gives us understanding in His Word, His sovereignty is downright Difficult to comprehend, but praise God, he gives us understanding of his works and his ways, and I know that it has stirred up a lot of healthy conversation amongst the people of grace. I know that uh, God is bringing about life change. I'm trusting that lives are being changed, and and I'm trusting that deep emotion uh, gives way to objective truth. Someone even said recently that learning these truths has been a positive struggle for them, and I think that's a good way to put it. A positive struggle. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, believers rejoice that Jesus saves us and changes us. Amen? Stand with me, if you will, if you're able, to honor God and his word. And today I'm going to read Romans chapter 9, verses 19 to 24. I'm preaching just 19 to 21, but let me read 19 to 24. We're going to see today that, that clay, or humans, cannot comprehend what the potter, God, purposes and produces. So, verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles." And Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you are here. We thank you that you want to teach us, Lord. And I pray that we would yield to you, Lord. We'd love you with all of our hearts. And that we would glorify you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This passage we are in today is about the potter's free choice. The potter's free choice, God's sovereignty, election, choosing, determining destinies. Those are not easy things, but they are so good for the souls of believers that it's comforting to know that God is free to do as he pleases. We have so many reminders that we are not God, and this is one of them. Clay cannot comprehend what the potter purposes and produces clay cannot contradict the potter clay cannot contend with the potter clay cannot circumvent the plans of the potter clay cannot challenge the potter it yields to the potter's desires 
We have been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through this beautiful book of Romans, and God has the gospel on vivid display, celebrating his righteousness given through faith in Christ. Paul is writing to a church that needed what every church needs, an increasing God-centeredness, increasing unity, increasing evangelistic zeal. And Romans gives us the shape of salvation, teaching justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That man is sinful and under the wrath of God. We see this in the first two chapters. That believers are rescued in Christ based on Christ's finished work on the cross in dying for our sins. We see that in chapters 3 and 4. And then you see the results in chapters 5 through 8. Peace, love, the indwelling Holy Spirit, unity in Christ, adoption as sons, eternal security, God's immeasurable riches in Christ. In Romans 8, 29, we see that believers were foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. You get to the high peak of Romans chapter 8, and believers are secure forever in Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so believers are unashamed of the gospel. We are uncondemned by our sin. We are unconformed to the world. And yet, before diving into the application in chapters 12 through 16, the Holy Spirit has Paul trek through God's overall purposes in salvation. And by the way, chapters 9, 10, and 11 are not add-ons, not filler. They are integral to the message of Romans, and the Spirit is having Paul trek through God's overall purposes in salvation. And the Spirit has Paul anticipating a question mark. What about all the unbelieving Jews? Gentiles were being saved. Why did so many Jews not believe? And the flow of the argument brings clarity about God's choices. The Jews had all the privileges that pointed to Christ but could not save them. And so what you see in Romans chapters 1 through 8 is God's order and steps of salvation. And then you go on to the end of the book in 12 through 16, chapters 12 through 16, here's God's outworking of salvation. But chapters 9 through 11... There's God's overall purpose in salvation. Romans 9 through 11 shows that God is faithful to his promises, even though most Israelites in Paul's day did not believe. They rejected Christ, but God can be trusted. His word stands. It's part of his plan. Their unbelief does not violate God's word. You see earlier in chapter 9, verses 6 through 13, the promise of God was never intended to guarantee salvation to every individual Israelite and physical descent from Abraham doesn't give you eternal security. God only promised that to those who believe, those whom he has chosen, the children of promise. And the Bible is very clear when we think about God's sovereignty. He is free to do as he wants. And nowhere is it more clear than in the context of salvation, which is the context of Romans chapter 9. In Jonah chapter 2, we read that salvation is of the Lord. In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. In John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus said, You did not choose me, but I chose you. In Acts chapter 13, verse 48, 
It says, as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. In Ephesians 1.3, it says that believers were chosen in him before the foundation of the world, predestined. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, according to his own purpose in grace, which was given us before the foundation of the world. 2 Thessalonians Thessalonians speaks of God choosing us from the beginning for salvation. Titus 1.1 speaks of the faith of the elect. 1 Peter 1.2 says that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. But nevertheless, accusations are levied against God for not being fair. And so what we see in chapter 9 is that God's faithfulness to his word is defended. God is defending himself. God is justifying his ways. And we see the ultimate explanation of why some Israelites are not children of God. You see that in chapter 9, verse 8, and why some are. If God chooses or elects some and not others, and it's not based on man's will or work, but God's will and work. That's what the passage tells us earlier in Romans. And so God is justifying his ways. He is faithful to his promises. And these three verses we're looking at today show that God is in complete control. He is God. His authority is what counts. And this is great comfort and assurance for believers. What we believe drives our life. It's important what we believe about God. It's important that what we believe about God comes straight from the scriptures. So regarding defending the potter's free choice, Paul is anticipating this next objection to what he has just said in verses 15 to 18. Look at verse 19 with me. He says, you will say to me then, so he's being very personal, he's he's interacting, Uh, someone raises an objection. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? What they're saying is, if a person's hardness of heart is ultimately due to God's will, and not man's will, then it is unrighteous for God to condemn that person for their hardness of heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the good doctor, made a very wise observation about this. It helped me as I was studying. Paul had been teaching in the previous passages that God and God alone does determine the salvation of every person. And a person is saved only because God has chosen him. And some people will try to get out of that, out of that difficulty by saying, well, that's because God is all-knowing and he knows certain people are going to believe when they hear the gospel, so he chooses them because of that. He knows that others also will not believe and therefore he hardens them because of that. But what Martin Lloyd-Jones says is that cannot be true. And the reason why is no one would object to that. Everyone would think that that's perfectly fine and just and fair. But people do object to the teaching of Romans 9, even many believers. And so they will say, as verse 19 says, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? The word resist means stand up against the will of God, literally push against the will of God, literally put their will before God's will. And what this does is it proves that Paul has been teaching that salvation is entirely the result of the sovereign will and election of God. Nothing to do with us at all. 
that it is true. No one has ever successfully resisted God's will so that even when they are resisting God's commands, as Pharaoh did, they are fulfilling the will of God. They're fulfilling God's purposes. Pharaoh said no to God's command to free Israel, and even his resistance is willed by God. God willed that Pharaoh resist his command. This is what we have been seeing in Romans 16. And I want to remind you that Romans, excuse me, Romans 9, and we're going to look at verse 16 in a moment. What we've been seeing in Romans 9 is that the sovereignty of God is on display. Romans 10 puts man's responsibility on display. And there is a tension there, and God is perfectly fine with it. And we need to embrace that tension. But in Romans 9.16, it told us salvation is because of God's will and works, not man's. It's because of God's good pleasure. And so, verse 18 told us, he sovereignly gives mercy to some and hardens others. And here's what we know. God punishes people for their own sin. You and I are responsible for our own sin. He punishes people for their own sin. He doesn't force people to sin and then punish them for it. In God's sovereign predestinating work, there are two sides. There are election and reprobation. If you have one, you've got to have the other. And what that is is a complete denial of universalism. Everyone isn't saved. Everyone isn't elected. God in sovereign grace saves his elect and the non-elect are not saved. They are reprobate. In God's divine predestining election, God positively intervenes and creates faith in and regenerates the elect. And then he negatively leaves the rest in their own sin. This, this goes right along with Romans chapter 1. He, he left them to their own devices. He gave them over to the direction they were already going. So there is no coercion to unbelief. No one gets injustice. The elect get mercy, and those not chosen get justice. I mean, think about it. We know the gospel truth. Everyone is dead in sin. Everyone is lost in sin. Everyone is under the wrath of God. No one deserves mercy. Everyone deserves hell. But God shows mercy to some. He chooses to give grace to some and chooses not to give grace to others. At the beginning of Jude, that there are some people who creep into visible local churches. Now, you've got the universal, invisible church of Jesus Christ that contains all real believers throughout all the ages. But then you've got local churches, local assemblies that are, by necessity of, of the way it's built up, built of believers and unbelievers. And God knows but Jude says this, there are some that creep into local assemblies that were long before ordained to destruction, to condemnation, before they ever showed up, before they ever walked in the door. God chooses some for grace and chooses not to give grace to others, but gives justice instead. And we have to ask the question, whose will is bigger? Whose will is stronger? Whose will is better? Whose will is ultimately determinative? God's will and our will are not on the same level. If you and I need to make a decision together, we can get together and discuss it, we can negotiate a final outcome, but it is different with God. He governs the universe. One more proof that we aren't God. And, and it's one more proof that we will as he has willed that we will will. We are responsible for what we will. We are not robots. We are real people making real decisions in real time. 
But God is God and we are not. His decisions are determinative. Part of acknowledging God, if you say, I, I'm a believer and I acknowledge God in, in all he is in terms of who he has revealed himself in the word of God, then that means that you have yielded to his power and also to his will. And we speak of God's will in two different ways. God's commanded, revealed will that you could say, I don't want to do that. Like, for example, love one another. And then you're not loving to your spouse or to your kids or to your friend or to your enemy or whatever. So there's his commanded, revealed will, but also there's his decreed secret will, which cannot be resisted. And so verses 14 were telling us what cannot be resisted is God's secret, effectual will of decree, what he has decreed. But in verse 19, this objector says, well, wait, it is wrong for God to find fault with man because without the freedom of self-determination, man cannot justly be condemned for their choices. And what the objector does is rightly sees one thing and wrongly concludes another. The objector rightly sees that God, not man, holds the final decision even in the lives of unbelievers, but wrongly concludes Unless a man can self-determine his own destiny against God, his evil acts cannot be faulted. He cannot be judged as a sinner. That's faulty reasoning. And here's what Paul does. He agrees with the objector in verse 19 that no one can resist God's will. But he disagrees with the conclusion. He's saying God is perfectly just in finding fault. God's ways are good and right. And then what he does, and you see this going on into verse 20, but he rejects the attitude that is behind the objection. Not just that this objector is twisting the truth, but as one person put it, it is precisely because the objection has the character of insolence rather than anguish that Paul responds so sharply. See, this person is the person going against God. This person is being presumptuous before God, so they are corrected strongly by God. Now, just before we move into verse 20, think with me for a moment about the question that gets asked. It seems like an obvious question. Well, if I have nothing to do with it, then how can God find any fault with me? If he wills it irresistibly, how can he blame me? But you dig deeper, and there is a nefarious motive on the part of the objector. The attitude towards God in verse 19 in the objection is the attitude of someone who is against God, not on his side. And so what the person is doing is trying to prove God wrong. That's why the wording is so strong in verse 20. Therefore, a sharp correction is given for that kind of objection. And we learn something from verse 19. We should not accuse God. Now, humble questions are good. Proud accusations are not. What you see in verse 20 is that God determines our destiny and holds us accountable for our choices. Look at verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That literally means talk back. Talk back, like, like kids are talking back to their parents or you talk back to someone in authority over you. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Literally, he's saying, who are you? Like, really? You're going to ask God why he did what he did and you're going to tell him that he's wrong? And so Paul basically says, how dare you ask? How dare you accuse? Don't go there. Don't belong to character. 
As mere humans, we have no right to accuse God of doing wrong. And that's what the questioner is doing. Paul says, oh man, who are you? Oh man. Basically, who are you, human being? Now, that could be a polite way to start a discussion. But in the context of this, in philosophical and political debates in those days, the word indicated deep emotion and sharp disagreement and a rebuke about to happen. So this is a full-on hypothetical argument. Most likely, Paul experienced these kinds of objections as he's preaching through the years, probably many times. So what this is 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 a throwdown. Who are you, oh man, to answer, to talk back to God? You're going against God, and and he's putting the objector in his place. Answer back. By the way, that's a very strong word. There's a tone of superiority and indignation. The, The objector thinks that he has taken higher moral ground than God and arrogantly assumes he's more righteous than God, and then because of that, he's able to point out God's mistakes. So answering back is big. In fact, Isaiah 29.16 speaks to this as well. Uh, Isaiah 29.16 says, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding? And Isaiah 45 verse 9, Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. Among earthen pots does the clay say to him who forms it what are you making or your work has no handles like i'm going to correct your mistakes so this objector opposes god says well god must not be just and this is where he gets indicted you cannot answer back like this to God and not have a strong rebuke. By the way, what this is not is a humble stance before God who asks humble questions. Believers ask humble questions of God. Even if they come out, you know, like the Psalms, you, know, you see full frontal um, words coming out at God from the psalmist, but the psalmist's heart is right with God. The psalmist's heart is with God. This is not a humble stance with God like believers have. This is an arrogant stance against God that unbelievers have. And let me just say, if you're a believer, which means you have trusted your soul into the hands of God, you are trusting in Christ's finished work on the cross. You believe that Jesus died for your sins, rose from the dead, is coming back, you believe he paid for your sins on the cross and you are saying, I can't save myself. I can't run my own life. Jesus is Lord and Savior. I'm gonna follow him. I'm gonna obey him. Then I would say to you, God can handle your questions. God can handle your humble questions. He is not displeased with your humble questions. However, they come out. He knows your heart. If you're a believer with a tender conscience, And if you're questioning how all these truths about God's sovereignty works, that's normal. We all do that. We all wonder. But if you're fighting against God, that's not good. This is a difficult, hard question. But the answer really comes in a man versus God contrast. Like our puny pea brains are really going to with God Almighty. How did that work out for Job? So Paul is saying... Who are you to presume to accuse? We need to realize how little we know. We need to be humble. We need to actually be silent often because we don't have all the info. 
So is it okay to question for believers? Absolutely. If you really want to receive the word and not prove your point. I wonder about these things all the time. Everyone does. But accusing God of being unfair is ungodly. We need to humbly and honestly love Jesus. I come across a lot of tender-hearted Christians who, when they get to this subject, are worrying whether they are of the elect, whether they're really saved or not. And all I can tell you is if, you are, if that's you and you're worrying about, oh no, if I, am I one of the elect or not? You're one of the elect. Okay? If, uh, unbelievers don't care one lick about this. When I was uh, not a believer, I cared nothing about it. I would have fought against it. But until I was born again by the Spirit of God, until I was saved, I didn't care anything about this. So if you're worried, if you're wondering if you're saved or not, that's a good sign. That's a good sign of health. If you could care less, be very, very concerned. The point here is that you cannot accuse God of being unfair because he is holy, he is loving, he is choosing, he is just. The, the psalmist said this, the Lord is kind in all his ways. He is good in all his deeds. He's righteous in all his ways. So a believer, they're just awestruck at who God is. They're, they're thankful that Jesus saved them. What believers do is say, how did I get saved knowing how sinful I am? That's what a believer does. 1 John 3, 1 says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Should be called children of God and so we are take the assurance first John 4 10 in this is love not that we loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins verse 15 whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God God abides in him and he in God we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us verse 19 we love because he first loved us if you trust in Christ and somehow your heart condemns you, Christ does not condemn you. Remember Romans 8.1? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I think the truth here is like this antibacterial ointment for your soul. Uh, it heals, it restores. Believe the truth. You want to live with a good conscience before God and man. Thomas Watson said this, a good conscience can sleep in the mouth of a cannon. 1 John 3, 19 says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. And so God does not reject your humble questioning of his ways. Let's go on in verse 20. Paul goes on in verse 20 says, will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? It's a rhetorical question. It's the reason why someone like Pharaoh or the objector in verse 19 should not question God. Here's why. Because God is the creator. Man is the creature. We are created. God is our creator. So for man to counsel God regarding how he should have acted is out of place. It's like a statue advising the sculptor how to shape it, or really like a, a big block of marble telling the sculptor how to shape it. It's like a, a canvas telling a painter what to paint. It's ludicrous and it's impossible. But you cannot presume that man's decisions are ultimate and, and go against God like that without correction. We forget. 
We forget Genesis 18, 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He is not answerable to us. Here's the Old Testament example of the absurdity, of the arrogance of, of making God answer to us. Isaiah 64, verses six through eight. We have all become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. And here's the acknowledgement of God, but now, O Lord, you are our father, we are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. And clay cannot comprehend all that God is doing. Let God be found true, and every man a liar. Don't think you can take God to court. Don't think that you can form a God of your own making that loves everyone and judges no one. And what happens in verse 21 is Paul gets to the heart of it. Paul gets to the heart of it. Here's what he's been angling to. Here's the kernel. Here's the nugget. Here's the golden standard. And here's what drives everything else. Verse 21, that God is in control and his authority is all-encompassing. God is in control and his authority is all-encompassing. Look at verse 21. Has not the potter the right over the clay? Again, a rhetorical question. Does the potter not have the right, literally the authority, the Greek word is exousia, the authority over the clay, the power over the clay, absolute right to rule, absolute right to decide? Now this expects a positive answer here. It makes verse 20's argument even more airtight. And here's the obvious point. In the relationship between potter and clay, between creator and creature, absolute authority for determining what kind of vessels it is right to make belongs to the potter, belongs to the creator not the clay. You could look at Jeremiah 18, verses one through six. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. And so I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. And he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? Declares the Lord, behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. The authority, the freedom, the right, the ability is the potter's free choice. And so it says in verse 21 near the end there, is he not free, does he not have the authority to make out of the same lump of clay one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. This explains the authority. God is the designer. God designs according to his plan. He has absolute control over individual destinies and, and plenty of people will deny that. But their arguments don't, tan, don't stand the test of scripture. The creator, you can roll through this passage backwards with me. Verse 21, the creator has the unassailable right to display his power and exercise his authority. Verse 20, no creature has the right to oppose the sovereign choices of God. And then verse 19, therefore the objection has no grounds. You cannot dispute God's righteousness in choosing whom he wills. 
It's a, a significant metaphor in Scripture, the potter and the clay metaphors. The Old Testament of, a view of God is one who created and shapes the individual in his heart. Job 10.9, remember, you have made me as clay. Psalm 33.15, he who fashions the hearts of them all. Psalm 119, verse 73, your hands made me and formed me. Psalm 138, verse 5, behold, Lord, you know all things, the end and the beginning. You formed me and put your hand on me. Next week, we're going to look more closely at the idea of God making vessels for honor and dishonor and and the tie-in in verses 22 through 24 about glory and destruction. But for today, suffice it to say this. We should not accuse God. Humble questions are good. Proud accusations are not. We are all wondering why. By the way, more proof that you're not God, that I'm not God. You wonder why? God doesn't wonder why he does things. Why does God leave some people in sin, others out of damnation? Why did he save me? I know how sinful I am. Well, guess what? He knows how sinful we are more than we know how sinful we are. But I want you to be able to make an amazingly simple discovery today. I want you to make the amazingly simple discovery that God's stuff belongs with him and we are called to obey and honor him. In fact, I want you to go over to Acts chapter 1 to a different context but makes the same point. Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Here's what happens. Let me set the stage. So Jesus has died on the cross, was buried, rose on the third day, and before he ascended to the Father, he has appeared to a lot of people. And he tells his disciples to gather before he's going up back up to the Father. And when they gather, here's the resurrected Jesus, and they're asking him a question. And here's what they ask him. Is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says this, like, look, It is not for you to know the times and the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. And he basically is telling them, now you go get to work being my witnesses in the world. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. He's basically telling them, let me do the God stuff. You do the servant of God stuff. I know that it is easy to get worked up about God's sovereignty, whatever side of the aisle you land on, but it's one more clue that we are not God. Our job is not to figure out all the mysteries of God. Our job is to celebrate the godness of God, the goodness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, and the justice of God. And we receive fresh insights into God's mystery in the word, but what we're called to do is love Jesus most of all, and then love your spouse, love your kids, love your own life that God has given you, love your friends, love your neighbors, love your enemies, work hard, go to school, go to work, be a good citizen, and reach your neighbors with the gospel, and enjoy the journey while you do your daily duties. And I want you to remember the bookends of Romans chapter 9 verse 1, and Romans chapter 10 verse 1. The deep anguish of heart that a believer has over unbelievers. Paul says in 9.1, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. 
then he says over in 10.1, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That's what a believer should be all worked up about. And I want you to remember the bigger bookends of Romans. Romans chapter one, verse five, and Romans chapter 16, verse 26, that show the purpose of God, that God purposes to bring about the obedience of the faith that people come to know and love and follow and serve Christ obediently. And the Bible is chock full, as you know, of calls to believe. Take them down the Romans road. Man is sinful. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 6.23. Take them to Romans chapter 10. Just turn one page or one slight swipe of your finger. Verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So you have the sovereignty of God in chapter 9. You have the responsibility of man in chapter 10. Embrace the tension. Receive the tension. God determines our destiny and holds us accountable for our choices. God is the potter. We are the clay. That means God has the right as creator to determine the destiny of all his individual creatures, and that's his alone. His freedom to determine his eternal purpose for each person. The potter, not the clay, has authority to determine the destinies of his creatures. And I am fully responsible for all my actions and accountable for all my choices. And scripture does not tell all relating Human responsibility to believe the gospel and God's initiative and freedom in showing mercy and dispensing, dispensing justice to whomever he will. It affirms both. That's why these chapters are right next to each other. The responsibility of man for his sin and response and God saving some and not saving others. This is like the parable of the workers in the field. God gives whatever he wants to whomever he wants, whenever he wants, or not. Embrace the tension. And I think if you embrace that tension... What you can also do is discover God afresh. Not God as you envision him or as you assume he is, but as he truly is. And think with me about the Psalms for a moment. It's it's easy to say, well, the Psalms are chock full of the psalmist just crying out to God. And sometimes the psalmist is angry and sometimes the psalmist is happy and everything in between. Here's what one writer wrote about that. The Psalms carry the full range of human emotion, good, bad, and ugly. But it is nothing compared to the God we find there. You want to discover God afresh? Read the Psalms. It's nothing compared to the God we find there. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23.1. But he is also an arm breaker, Psalm 10.15. And a teeth shatterer, Psalm 3, verse 7. The Lord is my light, Psalm 27.1. But he has also pushed me into the darkest depths of the pit. Psalm 88.6. It's like what C.S. Lewis had Mr. Beaver say regarding Aslan. He isn't safe, but he is good. He is anything but a tame lion. So you want to embrace the attributes of God. Don't domesticate him. Don't demystify his mysteries. You know what we should do? Let God roar biblically. Let God roar biblically without us pushing our ideas upon him. 
Matthew Barrett just recently wrote a book. It's called None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. It says we can only understand God's attributes in all their glory if such attributes originate from one core conviction. God is someone than whom none greater can be conceived. God is someone than whom none greater can be conceived. That you think of God and there's no one higher you can think of. And the moment we speak of him as if we've exhausted all the knowledge there is about him is the moment that we wander from the path of truth into the weeds and into the brambles of deception. Barrett says, the perfections of God are not like a pie. As if we sliced up the pie into different pieces. Love, 10%, holiness, 50%, omnipotence, 7%, and so on. But that whatever he is, he is that completely. He doesn't have a series of attributes like love and holiness. He is his attributes. He is all love, all life, all righteousness, all goodness, all mercy, all grace, all justice. Discover God afresh. He is in control. His authority is all-encompassing. He is in such control that he sovereignly elects to show mercy to some while letting others go on in sin. And he is just in doing so. These verses today, these three verses, just show us that we are in no position to challenge God on this matter. We make mistakes. God the potter is perfect. He can't be blamed. And we shouldn't overthink it. These verses display God's unchanging character and work so that I am amazed in his presence, that I want to worship him, that I, I want to delight in him, I want to serve him. There are some things I have personally learned from, from these three verses. I'll share them with you. I, I put them kind of in a, uh, a decision type of a framework that, that by God's grace, I will humbly ask but never arrogantly question God that I will accept from God's hand even pain as a kind teacher, knowing that my future is bright because Jesus is faithful. And that by God's grace, I will patiently work with those who oppose God. 2 Timothy 2.25 says, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, that God may grant them repentance, knowledge of the truth. And that by God's grace, I will trust the Father who saved me, and I will trust him with every ounce of my I will enjoy him with all of my strength. You know what Jonathan Edwards said? The enjoyment of God is our highest happiness and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. So in your life, apply the God as potter and, and you as clay motif and do it not just in the joyful times but in the difficult aspects of life and it will help change your attitude and your actions. Maybe you are evangelistically frustrated right now. What I mean by that is you are just, you're preaching the gospel to people and nobody's getting saved around you. And, and maybe they never do. How many missionaries that have been on foreign fields that for like 20 years nobody came to Christ? Only God knows. Doesn't it make your heart ache? A true believer's heart aches over that. So if you're a believer, you ache over that. Unbelievers, they don't care. Cauterized hearts can't claim compassion. They, they, they're, they're contrary to God's ways. Maybe you feel helpless today. Maybe in your life, you're like, I'm helpless. Remember the, the words of the hymn, Oh God, our help in ages past, our hope for years to come. 
our shelter from the stormy blast, our eternal home. Maybe you feel hopeless today, only if you're not a believer. Because we read in Romans that hope does not disappoint, and hope that is seen is not hope. Don't miscategorize hope. Don't miscategorize wishful thinking and think it's hope. Maybe you found yourself homeless. There are some amongst our body that have found themselves Jesus meets your deepest need. He is preparing a home for you in heaven. And I hope someone opens their door to you. Maybe you feel friendless today. Friendless. Jesus is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Just apply the potter and the clay motif. Maybe you feel faithless. George Mueller said, my faith is a gift from God, and left to myself, my faith would fail. Trust the potter. Maybe you feel fruitless, and you're a believer. You know what I would say to you? Look closer. Just look closer because believers have the root of faith and, and there, is, there is fruit being born by the Holy Spirit. Just look closer. Maybe, maybe you're lonely today. Maybe you're depressed. Potter in the clay. Remember Psalm 34. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He is forming us. He is shaping us. He is trimming us as a potter would. He is perfecting us. He is pruning us. He is sending us. This is what a potter does, by the way. Everything that Dave makes out on the plaza today, if he wanted to make that a finished product, he'd have to send it through the fire. So God sends us through the fire to make us usable. Testing and trying and building strength and endurance, and substance through a painful refining process. And it is not necessarily instant. We just want everything instant. God can heal you instantly. God can change your situation instantly. But usually it's a painful process. I'm awestruck at times of how people can lose seemingly everything or give up almost everything earthbound and be so joyful with a heavenly view. And it's because for a believer, it's only Christ in us, our hope of glory. Jesus is our life. So no matter where you are in life or where you aren't in life, whatever you have right now or whatever you don't have right now, for the believer, we say Jesus is enough. Yield everything to Christ. Lord, we want to glorify you by believing your word and speaking well of you and accepting your ways and decrees. And yes, we as the clay cannot comprehend what you, the potter, purposes or produces. And we don't want to contradict you, Lord. We don't want to contend with you, Lord. We don't want to challenge you, Lord. We yield to your desires. And so we trust you, Lord, you who are loving and kind and merciful to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.